0: Hey, what is up? Welcome to another episode of Going Deep with Aaron Watson. We've got Jordan Goodman on the show today, America's money answer man. He's here to talk about personal finance, some alternative investment strategies, and some other basic fundamentals that you need if you want to be financially fit. As you know, finance is one of my favorite topics of discussion, and so I built a new page on the website goingdeepwithaaron.com/finance so that you can find all of our previous episodes with different folks in the world of finance. We've got venture capital, we've got financial advisors, We've got thought leaders. We've got real estate experts, all in one place, easy to find. And we're adding Jordan's page to that there shortly as well. So check that out if you're interested in more finance interviews. Once again, in today's discussion with Jordan, we discuss some interesting investment strategies and just the basic advice that he tries to give everyone out there, the mistakes he sees people making, including paying too much in fees. Really fun conversation. Jordan has a great energy, and I learned a lot from talking with him. So here is my conversation with Jordan Goodman. You're listening to Going Deep with Aaron Watson. So Jordan, welcome to Going Deep with Aaron Watson. Thank you for coming on the show today.
1: Great to be with you, Aaron. I really appreciate being on the show.
0: You are America's money answer man, and I have a ton of questions that I'm excited to get some answers to. Uh, so if you're ready to jump into it, I, I have a big one to, to kick us off. Yeah. And and that is the idea that there's something of a catch-22 with financial advice. And what I mean by that is a lot of folks don't have a well-developed method of determining who to get financial advice from and as you get more educated um, on personal finance financial literacy you get better at determining who to get advice from but because you know more maybe you don't need as much advice or you need different advice but from a kind of starting point uh where where i interpret a lot of people getting tripped up is being basically getting advice from the wrong sources whether that's someone with uh, adverse incentives or someone who just straight up doesn't know what they're talking about, a crazy uncle who's got a you know a wild investment scheme that you probably should stay away from. In your, you know, decades of experience when you're talking with folks who are kind of really starting at the one oh one level, how do you help them determine where good financial advice is coming from?
1: It's gotta start with their own motivation because a lot of people are very lazy, unfortunately, when it gets to personal finance. And so they've got to say, I want to learn about this stuff. I want to take action and put things and you know, put myself first. <clears throat> I talk to tons of people who don't take care of these things, and then they're open to somebody saying, well, I'll take care of it. And you're right. They either don't know what they're talking about, or they have conflicted advice, or they're charging ridiculous fees or commissions, and people don't even know they're being ripped off in many cases. So you've got to start with saying, this is an area I want to spend some time on, Because the payoff is huge. A little bit of effort and knowledge has a huge payoff when you learn about personal finances. Uh, So I would say the beginning should be educating yourself, whether it be books or there's tons of websites. I mean, my website, MoneyAnswers.com, has lots of free links and resources of all types. So learning about these things yourself so that you're not subject to being taken advantage of by people who charge big commissions. Uh, Now, there's something going through the Labor Department right now called the fiduciary rule. Which, in theory, should mean when you deal with a financial advisor, they're supposed to put you, the client, ahead of themselves in all decisions. Now, it looks like that may be watered down or potentially even reversed. But the idea is there's a lot of conflicts of interest that most people don't have any clue uh, is happening to them. And therefore, they get taken advantage of with very high commissions and fees and products that are not appropriate for them because it serves the financial advisor, not the client. So... Hopefully, that fiduciary rule will help a little bit. Uh, but even if you had something like that, you've got to be on guard. Now, I'll say another thing, Aaron, which is that in order to get top quality financial advice, you need a lot of money. That's a problem for a lot of people because the financial advisors right. are only going to make money off you if you have 100000 a million, you know, some big amount of money on which they can earn asset management fees or commissions of some type. If you have $5,000 to your name, you're going to get nobody interested in you whatsoever. That's just the reality of the situation, and that doesn't mean you can't do well financially. But you're going to have to use no-load mutual funds or discount brokers or things where you have to be more involved yourself. Um, so, and I've been seeing all these brokerage firms are moving higher and higher. You know, they don't want to deal with you if you have a hundred thousand. Well, the next year it's two hundred thousand, and that's near it's a million. So they're all serving the top. 5%, I'll be generous, top 10% of the population. And 80 to 90% of the population has no financial advice all the time, uh, which is frankly where I come in because I mean, they email me at moneyanswers.com and I help tons and tons of people who have no financial advisors. So if, if that gives you a little perspective on it, that's what I see.
0: Absolutely. And, and it seems like, you know, everyone has varying degrees of self education on this stuff, but that those kind of rush by the institutional financial advisors who have been around for a long time into only really helping the wealthiest of clients has opened up you know an opportunity for you and also for some of the digital firms to come in the betterments the wealth fronts who are trying right. to scale that financial advice and charge a, a much smaller Fee to their participants, you don't know, no fee for some people if they're less than ten thousand dollars, like you said. How do you, how do you feel about those digital financial advisors? Um, what, what's your opinion on them?
1: Well, the way things are going is the so-called robo advisor, where there is no human there. It's a it's a computer, it's an algorithm, uh, it's a program, and for many people that's going to be just fine. It's an asset allocation. Should you put some money in stocks and bonds? How should you allocate your four hundred one k uh, for a lot of people, if they can handle working with a computer instead of a human being, a Robo advisor might be perfectly fine. These are all time tested strategies that have gone back a long time. The average person could could benefit from something like that. So I just want to set expectations Aaron. you know if you have five to ten thousand dollars don 't expect any financial advisor to be interested in you whatsoever okay you 're going to get a Robo advisor, but that that could be just fine. The key thing is to get into habits. So your personal finances are getting better instead of worse. And uh, uh, automatic saving is certainly a way of doing it. Getting out of credit card debt, there's lots of things you can do. I always like, like to say, I want positive things to be happening automatically. A lot of people in a financial situation where negative things are automatically happening to them. They're, they've got a credit card debt and they're only paying the minimum on their credit cards and they're paying 25% interest or something. That's an automatic negative thing happening as opposed to maxing out your 401k, and taking the match and investing automatically. So every two weeks, you get more and more going in. That's something automatically right happening for you. So a lot of this is not brain surgery. You just got to kind of set up the right habits.
0: Yeah, one of the things I've seen, you know, I have a background in financial services and was talking with someone, I'm not going to obviously name who it was, but they were saving. They had, you know, tens of thousands of dollars in their savings account and yet were also carrying... I don't know something like five thousand ten thousand dollars of credit card debt when they had more than enough in emergency funds to pay that off and and the, you know they thought they were doing the right thing by saving um and they're like oh, you know they're only asking me to pay that little bit it was like well you're getting charged you know 18 or 20 percent interest on that credit card debt and you're probably not even making one percent because it's just sitting in your savings account there so so there's a that kind of theme of, you know, some people know some of the good habits, but it's really hard to set a priority list. And, and given that our listenership, you know, skews a little bit younger, uh, might be, you know, in the earlier stages of putting together their own financial plan or thinking about their finances and not necessarily, like you said, having access to those advisors, how do you... Uh, maybe scale or prioritize different things like you know, save in a retirement fund, pay down certain debt, some debt's sure. okay, and you know, maybe buy a house?
1: Okay, so let's just take one at a time. So, saving, so I would say savings is a habit. It's not an event. <laughs> okay. It's not like, oh, when I win the lottery, then I'll start saving. Or when I pay off my credit card, then I'll start saving. No, it's something you set up as an automatic habit. Obviously, the easiest thing is a 401k at work, or if you work in a nonprofit, a 403b. If you work in a government agency, a 457 plan, they're all basically the same idea. You take a certain amount of your salary. Typically, you're being matched maybe up to 6% of your salary. If you're going to be matched, absolutely take the amount you're being matched. One of my basic principles of personal finance, Aaron, is never refuse free money if it's given to you. I hope you'd agree with that one. Amen. So a lot of people are refusing free money in their 401ks. About 70% of the people being offered 401ks with matches are enrolled, and 30% are not. So those 30% are turning down free money every paycheck. Now, they say they can't afford it. You can't afford not to take the free money. So one of the good things about 401ks is the money goes in pre-tax. It's growing tax-deferred. And then uh, when you take it out in retirement, you've you know, the taxes kind of spread out over a long period of time. Um, and it's automatic. So you're also doing what's called dollar cost averaging, meaning you're putting the same dollar amount in, 100 bucks every paycheck, whatever it may be. When the prices of what you're buying are down, when the market's fallen, you buy more shares. When the prices are up, you buy fewer shares. This is like buying low, selling high, or buying less when it's high. Emotionally, you want to do the opposite. When the market's up and really doing really well, you say, this is great. I want to buy. And when the market's really depressed, you think the world's going to end like in 2008, 2009, you run the other direction from the stock market. So emotionally, uh, it might feel better to uh, sell low and buy high, but you don't make a lot of money that way. So a 401k where you're doing automatically the right thing without even thinking about it, that's why people have accumulated good, good assets in 401ks. In addition to that, you have to have other money working for you um, beyond the 401k. And as you're right, a savings account today earns zero. <laughs> okay, you're saving the money, you're not spending it, that's good. But sitting there earning zero in savings accounts, CDs, money market funds, treasury bills is not getting you ahead. Okay, so you gotta make that money work for you. I'll give you some an example of something I'm doing myself which might be of interest to the listeners. There's something called commercial real estate income funds, and there's a website for that: commercialrealestateincomefunds.com. is a very simple way for the average person to earn eight percent, very safely, minimum hold times eighteen months, no commissions of any kind involved, and uh, you can either take the monthly checks or reinvest them and have it grow at eight percent. They're investing; they're, they're lending money to commercial real estate projects over a short period of time, basically. Um, that website will give you more details on But there's a way for the average person, minimum investment, by the way, is $5,000 on that, um, to have their money grow at 8% instead of zero. There's currently about $10 trillion sitting in CDs, money market funds, savings accounts, earning nothing. It's just tragic. Now, the banks like it because they've got your money for free and they lend it back to you at 18% on a credit card. So they're not going to tell you anything is wrong with it. But for the average person to have their money saved... And not growing is not a good thing.
0: Yeah. And, and the other thing with a lot of just kind of the general saving, you're talking about like building habits and the the practice of, you know, putting a hundred bucks a month into a Roth IRA and, and setting up your 401k is it's not, it's not sexy. It's sexy to go after uh, this big, you know, my, like I, I use, I'm going to use the crazy uncle analogy again. Uh, someone's proposing me on like starting investing in his business or these other you know let's all go all in on this specific stock pick but quite frankly that's outside the area of expertise for a lot of people and the truth is that the kind of long-term track record proven results method isn't necessarily going to be the the sexiest option another kind of piece of right. of common wisdom that's out there or maybe not wisdom uh, but common saying is seeing uh, buying a house as an investment. I'm 25 years old. A lot of my my friends, peers are considering or have bought in a house. And that's kind of one of the big first major financial events of uh, your adult life. Do you like thinking, you reference these kind of commercial real estate investments. Do you like it when people see their house as an investment or do you frame it another way?
1: I don't really think it should be considered an investment. Now, it is by most people, but because the prices of houses are so much higher today and because it's so much harder to get a mortgage because of all the rules that have come into effect since the financial crisis under the Dodd-Frank law, for example, and you need a bigger down payment, typically 20% or more, you need a really good credit score, 700 if not higher, it's hard for the 25-year-olds who are just starting off to put together a $100,000 down payment for a house that's a decent house somewhere. A lot of millennials are not buying homes either at all or for many more years. I mean, typically in the past, people might have bought their first home when they were 25 or 30. Today, I think a lot of people wait till their 30s and even 40s to get into a home. And some are never going to buy homes at all because they want to be mobile. I mean, people do not go to one job and stay at the same job for 40 years, the way the parents might have done. They know they need to be mobile and flexible and move around. So having a house, uh, if you can't sell it, kind of locks you down. Um, So a lot of millennials are not buying homes as they did in the past, which I think makes sense. A home is actually a place to live, not a place to invest. And people get into real trouble when they expect appreciation, or even more so when they get into kind of the house flipping game. It can work, but you can get stuck, as a lot of people did in 2008, 2009, with homes they couldn't sell. And then they had to walk away from them, uh, which was, was a nice name for it. They called it strategic default which means you basically ruined your credit by walking away from a house and a mortgage, the banks used to call that jingle mail, which is they'd they'd get a a piece of mail with the keys in it. They knew that was another person walking away from their house. You don't want to be in a situation like that because it's really going to ruin your credit. Now, having said that, if you do buy a house, there are ways to handle it better than the way most people do. Most people think that you're going to get a 30-year mortgage and pay it off slowly over time and then maybe refinance down the road. Uh, so basically you're going to have a mortgage your entire working life. There is a strategy which is called mortgage equity optimization, which literally allows you to pay your mortgage off in about five to seven years instead of 30 years on the same level of income you've got today. That's going to change a lot of people's lives right there. Can you imagine you buy a house when you're 30 and it's paid off when you're 35 instead of when you're 60. I mean, what a difference in, in your life that would make. Um, so there's a website related to that strategy, which is called truthinequity.com. And if you want, I can just briefly describe how it works. I, I did a chapter on this in one of my books. But there's a strategy right there that can really make it more sense. If your mortgage is paid off in five years, now you've got your home free and clear. You want me to go into that in more detail?
0: Yeah, absolutely. That's probably something that not a lot of people have heard of or are familiar with. So that will be enlightening. Right.
1: This, I'm, this, is, this is the fast version of it, okay? But uh, So basically what you do in your traditional mortgage situation, you keep your income in a checking account sitting there earning zero, and you're paying on the mortgage for 30 years. All the interest is front-end loaded on a mortgage. So after, say, 10 to 15 years, you might have paid off 10% of the mortgage principal, very, very small amount, because all those early years are pretty much all interest. So with mortgage optimization, you're reversing that, and you're paying off more and more principal every day, using a home equity line of credit, which is called the HELOC, which is a liquid line attached to your house. You keep your income in the HELOC, you push the principal down every day, and you're making more and more progress, and literally every month, your mortgage payment is going down as you pay it off faster, and then depending on how the numbers work out, five to seven years, you literally have paid off your entire mortgage, and you are now mortgage-free. It's using your money for your benefit instead of the bank's benefit, if that makes sense. Because when your money is in the HELOC, it's pushing down the principal. HELOCs are based on what's called average daily balance. How much do you owe today? So say you had $1,000 that would normally be sitting in your checking account earning zero. You put it in the HELOC where you owe your mortgage. Say you owed 50000 You put it in now you owe 49000 So you're owing interest on less principal. And you keep that income moving in there. And your principal goes down at an accelerating rate. So that's the the shortened version of it. If you want more detail, go to that website I just gave you, truthinequity.com. You fill in what's called a personal profile, and then they take you through the whole thing and show you exactly how you can literally save tens of thousands of dollars in interest and pay your mortgage off 25 years faster than you ever thought possible.
0: That's pretty cool. We'll be sure to link to that in the show notes so people can learn more about that. Related to mortgages... Um, and and kind of the the wisdom associated there is if you can get a long term mortgage with a low interest rate, then you can go elsewhere with your dollars and hopefully you know make more than whatever the lower interest rate is your chart you're being enough.
1: Just like what we've talked about so far. say you've got a thirty year mortgage with a four percent rate, something like that, and say you put your money in that commercial real estate income fund we talked about earning eight percent, which is very safe, okay. You just made 4% on your money, and and the the mortgage interest is deductible. So it actually after taxes may be yep. costing you 2 or 3%. So there's a very simple way. Now, what you don't want to do is confuse what's certain with what's uncertain. The mortgage is certain. You're going to pay 4%. There's a certain payment on it. You know what that's going to be.
0: As long as you have a fixed rate mortgage.
1: As long as you have a fixed rate mortgage, which most people do today, right. Yeah. You, if you combine a fixed rate mortgage with like – you know, an aggressive stock funders or you know, biotech or something, that may do great, but it may go down. That's uncertain. So I like to max match certainties. So in the case of the commercial real estate income fund, that's a certain 8%. The mortgage is a certain 4%. That's a good match. I see people do this. Oh, I'm going to borrow against my home to speculate in stocks. You know, well, if the stock market's going up, that's great. But if it goes down, you still have to make the payments on the mortgage. So people get a lot out, out of sort. You have to have a, a clear match of two certain or two uncertains, if you know what I mean.
0: Right. Um, How else is leverage an important factor in success? Homeownership is one example of that. Preparing, you know, before we actually started the interview, we we're talking a little bit. And leverage is a, a big talking point for you. How else can... Uh, listeners of the show use leverage to find more success.
1: So I think leverage is the key to success. And by leverage, I do not mean debt. I mean leveraging your talents, uh, your connections, and financial situation, because you as an individual only have so much talent, time, and effort you can put into something. And if you're just trading time for dollars, it limits what kind of success you can have. The key to success, particularly for younger people who are kind of getting started, is to leverage their knowledge with the knowledge and contacts of other people and the finances of other people as well to grow something much bigger than themselves. I mean, just to give you a simple example, uh, Bill Gates started off uh, you know, doing the software in his dorm room at, at Harvard, okay, when well, he came out of there and then he had other people Doing uh, software and then DOS and then Windows and everything that they've got. It went way beyond what he could do as an individual. And he created a company that has equity. And now he's a multi-billionaire because of all the effort of all the people that have worked at Microsoft for the last 30 years or so. He didn't just stay in his dorm room writing software. You see what I mean? So he started something, but he made it something much bigger than himself. So in my case, I'll tell you how I use Leverage. Uh, I'm on radio, I'm on TV, I help people all kinds of ways, but I have various financial companies that I think are really good, that can really help people. Those are things I don't do, but I can refer them to other people who do do those things. I just gave you an example, truth and equity. I've referred people to them for 10 years and given them 50,000 people to work with that's transformed their lives and helping them pay their mortgage off faster. I'm proud to say I get something for that. In other words, if they... If I refer somebody to Truth and Equity and they do some business, I get a little something from that, like an affiliate fee. And so I don't have to be the Truth and Equity people, but I can refer people to them. I benefit, the customer benefits, Truth and Equity benefits. That's an example of leverage. You see what I mean? And so whatever field you're in, you will lie with other people who have other things to bring to the party. It can be money, it can be expertise, it can be contacts. And you can just do a lot more with a bunch of people like that than you can ever do on your own when you're just trading time for money
0: absolutely and and scaling a team. Amplifies your message, amplifies your work. It just makes it a lot easier to get shit done if you have a, a team behind you as well. So that's another great point. And as we kind of aim towards the back nine of this conversation, Jordan, we've been giving a lot of good financial advice out there. I'm curious as someone who's been in the industry uh, for a while now, what is some of the worst advice that you hear being perpetuated in, in different circles?
1: Wow, there's a lot of bad advice out there um I mean certainly uh interested advice where they're they're charging commissions I mean, I see a lot of people get into annuities, for example, where they lock in a three percent yield for ten years with surrender charges so they can't get out of the thing, and it's just a terrible deal for people, but they have huge commissions on it up front, so uh, you know things like that I think are are very bad um you, you talked before about the, the rich uncle. I mean, I hear this all the time. I don't know about finances, but my uncle, my cousin, somebody else knows about this stuff, so I'm just going to follow what they say blindly because I don't want to spend any time on this kind of stuff. That's asking for trouble because <laughs> these are people who, in many cases, have no idea you know what they're doing. One of the books I did is called Master Your Money Type, and I talk about the different financial personalities that people have And what kind of personality you have makes a difference in what kind of advice you're able to take. One of my um, personality types is what I call the ostriches. And those are people that just don't deal with money. It's like they don't open their bank statements. They don't look at their 401ks. They don't have enough insurance. They just don't deal with the stuff. They think somehow it'll all just take care of itself. Or I'll have this, this guy over there, you know, he'll take care of it for me. You know, that's asking for trouble. I'll just give you a story. I spoke at a a continuing care community, you know, kind of people who have been there for a long time, kind of retirement community. And uh, 90% of the people there are women because the men have died. Basically they're in their seventies, eighties, nineties. And I did this whole speech about how to invest and how to make your money work for you and all this wonderful thing and came up to them afterwards and said, so how was that? You Oh, that was great, but I don't need to do any of that because Herbie who died 25 years ago, took care of it. It's like, what do you mean? Well, he's just, he set it up. So it, I haven't looked at it since. It's like, oh, it's like, you know what I mean? People don't take – I would say that the greatest forces in personal finance are inertia and apathy. People don't seem to care and they don't do, even though it makes no sense whatsoever. You have to care about this stuff and make things happen. And the more interested you are yourself, the better you're going to do And I mean things we've just talked about, ways of earning 8%, ways of paying your mortgage off in five years instead of 30 years, getting your credit card debt under control, maxing maxing out your 401K – These are relatively simple things to do, but if you do them, you're going to have a huge improvement in your financial life compared to sitting there, paying on a mortgage for 30 years, having your money sitting in a savings account, earning nothing, and having huge credit card debt. Just those things alone... What a difference that'll make in people's financial lives
0: absolutely and and what I actually draw parallels to is with personal health, particularly with my peers you know everyone they have men's health magazine or they have the the fitness instructor that they follow or the diet plan and every and, and you know you have to know something about personal health if you're going to be fit and live a healthy life and and kind of have the positive effects of that. Uh, But don't take that same attitude with their finances. They're they're very happy to hand the reins over in a financial decision and not do the research themselves and understand and self-educate. Um, in, in the same way that they would with their health. And yet everyone knows that if you're solely relying on, uh, one doctor's appointment a year, if you even do your regular checkup for your health advice, you're probably going to be missing, messing up your diet. You're going to be messing up other factors. So I I think from a health standpoint, it it has to be in line with that type of thinking.
1: Very much so. Yeah. I mean, I have a, a trainer where I work out three times a week. Um, in theory, I could do it myself. But when, if for whatever reason, he can't show up, I tend to find some excuse not to work out. So having that kind of accountability partner makes a big difference in making sure I actually do work out three times a week, as difficult as it may may be. Uh, and the same thing in the financial—you needs an accountability partner uh, who's going to help you implement a lot of the things we've talked about. One particular area I just wanted to mention because I know it's of great interest to your audience is student loan debt, and um, you know the millennials have just been. Buried in student loan debt, the average person has about thirty-eight thousand in student loan debt, um, and many people way, way more than that—fifty, hundred, hundred 150,000 undergraduate. And if they go to graduate school, you know, medical school, business school, law school, another 400,000, hundred, four hundred thousand—just incredible numbers—before they get their first job, and it just changed society in a major, major way. So just one area I want to help in that because I think that would be of interest to your audience. Would that be helpful? Yeah,
0: absolutely. absolutely.
1: Okay, first thing you can do uh, is to consolidate all these different debts, if you, the federal debt, and a, a bunch of different interest rates, a bunch of different loans into one, and you can save some money that way and have one bill a month to pay instead of many. There's a website for that, which is consolidatecollege.com. Can I, can I help you go through that whole process? There are some programs out there where if you meet the criteria, you could actually have your student loan debt completely forgiven. There's something called the Income-Based Repayment Program, the IBR program, for example. And that says if you work for the government in any state, local, federal, military, post office, anything like that, if you work for a nonprofit 501c3 group of any kind, uh, if you're a doctor and you go work at an Indian reservation, I mean, there's a whole bunch of ways to qualify for that. You pay the minimum on your student loans for 10 years. And after that, no matter how much you owe, the rest is forgiven. So that's one thing that can help a lot of people. Because typically student loan debt can be 30 years or more. And so that can at least get it done in, in 10 years, which is better. And then a lot of people do not realize, Aaron, that you can refinance your student loans to much, much lower interest rates. Typically about 2 to 3%, something in that range. Instead of 5 to 10%, if you have private loans, it's going to be you know, 9%, 10%, something like that. A website for that is called Credible dot com, C-R-E-D-I-B-L-E, credible.com, and then you do backslash money answers, and you actually get 200 bucks off your first payment, um, and that's the way they have about eight different lenders who will refinance your student loans, and again, you combine federal and private loans into one and pay it off much quicker. It's not going to make the student loans disappear, but if you can pay them off at 2% instead of 5 or 10%, that'll help a little bit. So and I did a book on this particular topic too called "The Ultimate Guide to Student Loans," which goes into this in much more detail.
0: Excellent. I mean that's excellent advice. I've been trying to go i I have for years actually gone over the minimum payments for the student loans um just in an in, in a attempt to shorten uh, the amount of time that I'm going to be paying those back because it also you know seeing yourself as a business. Uh, is is a lesson that I learned very on very early on from my father and you know that just boils down to how much cash is coming in how much cash is flowing out and that regular payment um, limits your free cash flow whether that is for saving whether that is for uh, enjoyment or even even investing in you know this show other kind of opportunities that I have out there so I think that that's something that uh, a lot of people will appreciate.
1: Great, and it's 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 the problem of this generation. I mean, because of the amount of student loan debt out there, uh, millennials are starting uh, families later. Uh, they're renting instead of buying. They're not buying cars. They're just doing a lot less with their lives than the people of previous generations, because the amount of debt is so enormous. And, you know, sorry, Bernie Sanders, it's not going to go away. Okay, you're not going to have free. Uh, college and no student loans. It's just not the way things work. In fact, the current numbers I saw recently, there's 150 colleges charging more than $60,000 a year in tuition these days. And that's going to only grow. And and in fact, the public universities, the tuitions may be lower, but they're rising at a faster rate because they're getting less support from the states these days. So it's a problem. I'm not saying you shouldn't have college education, but uh, the burden is just enormous on people. And I would also say if people are – this thing of going to college or having their kids. If you can possibly have a direction, you don't have to know for sure what your major is going to be, but have a direction so it's going to pay off. Because a lot of people go to college, they switch majors several times. I think over 50% of the people who, graduate, who uh, enter as freshmen either never graduate or take at least five years or more to graduate, which adds to the cost of the whole thing. So the whole college experience can be done a lot better and if you have a clear focus on whatever it may be, they're actually going to make some money doing it. That's a lot better than kind of changing your major all the time, not really coming out of there with a clear direction.
0: Yeah, I mean, I don't see how it can last much longer going that way. And, and I do. I've had guests on. I'm actually a little bit further on the extreme there of encouraging people to take a gap year or consider alternatives. And, and like you said, if you're going to go, know what you're going for. Don't go for a four year drinking fiesta that's not going to be a productive uh, time so that that's one i actually feel passionately about
1: the solution today is online i mean you can you may not get a fancy degree but you can learn what you need to um online there's all kinds of great places coursera uh, udacity there's all these online universities where you can literally for free see the lecture at stanford or mit or harvard you know all these places you don't have to physically be there all the time so there's lots of ways to learn things on your own without having to take on the huge debt. And I think people are, are stepping back and, and saying, is this worth it to pay $60,000 a year and, and have 200000 or more in debt for undergraduate? Uh, is this something I really want to do? Uh, it, it's the only place where a 17- or 18-year-old has unlimited access to money and can borrow, having no clue whatsoever how they're going to pay it back. And that's what gets people into an awful lot of trouble.
0: Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I, I, we are moving into an age of show your work really being more significant than the credential. Um, like, you know, this show has gotten me speaking opportunities. It's gotten me work opportunities. Um, I'm positive that your website and all the stuff that you've done has, has been what has opened more doors for you than Absolutely. your degree from Amherst from however many years ago.
1: 40 years ago, correct. 1976, I went to Amherst. And you're right. It's not about credentials. It's about what you can offer people today, what value you can offer today, whether you have a degree or not. That's correct.
0: Well, Absolutely. Uh, well, you have, you've delivered so much value today uh, over the course of this last half hour. Uh, if people want to connect with you and learn more, see more of the work and the, and the books and everything, uh, where can we direct them to?
1: So my website is moneyanswers.com. Uh, that's the central place. I've got blogs. Uh, I do things from Twitter. I'm on radio shows all over the place. I've got a weekly show called The Money Answers Show, which I've been doing for 10 years, which is almost called The Voice America Business Network, where I do an in-depth interview with somebody in the world of personal finance. Lots of There's a whole archive there that you can learn. So there's, I just love to help people and uh, be glad to take emails from your listeners as well is a last jordan button at moneyanswers.com so i've been doing this a long time and really love to help people because if they'd spend a little bit of time and effort the payoff is enormous
0: Absolutely. Financial literacy is a difference maker. And uh, I encourage people to go check out the site and continue to educate themselves. Uh, But Jordan, this has been fantastically enjoyable and informative. Um, I'm going to be doing more research after this interview myself, and I'm sure the listeners will as well. So uh, if we can get one more uh, nugget from you here, I'm going to give you the mic a final time to issue an actionable personal challenge for the audience.
1: Well, certainly if you're being offered a 401k at work and you have not signed up for it, do it today. No excuses allowed at all. <laughs> so go in, fill in the forms. And if you're under age 40, put it in the most aggressive option you've got. Uh, it could be an S&P 500 or emerging markets or small company. You've got time on your side to make your money grow. So in particular, if you're being matched, be aggressive with the match. That's the free money. Make that work as fast as possible. So sign up for a 401k, max it out, and be as aggressive as you can for the first 20 years of your, your work, uh, wherever it may be. So that's my personal challenge you should take care of
0: today. I love it. And another thing, it kind of maybe counterintuitive, you definitely want to you know check in, make sure everything is working the way uh, it's supposed to be, but you don't need to be checking it every single day. They actually did a, a study at Vanguard and found that the folks who logged in less frequently ended up having better results because they were less likely to basically make a dumb mistake because they didn't know what they were doing with their money. So uh, check in on it, but don't be you know, logging in every single day and frantically watching the, the market go up and down because over the long term, everything's going to take care of itself.
1: It'll drive you crazy. But as we talked about before, dollar-cost averaging, when it goes down, you're automatically buying more when you would emotionally want to buy less or sell. So you're right. Just keep it on automatic pilot. Keep it growing. Reinvest dividends. Have the power of positive compounding working for you. And do some things we talked about, too, as far as getting out of debt. Avoid the negative habits. Be in the positive habits, and it can make a huge difference in your life going forward.
0: Awesome challenge and awesome conversation. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Jordan.
1: Thanks so much, Aaron. really appreciate it.
0: We just went deep with Jordan Goodman. Hope everyone out there has a fantastic day. Hey, hope you enjoyed today's episode. Head on over to goingdeepwithaaron.com slash join to sign up for our monthly newsletter, including best episodes, great links, book recommendations, all sorts of other good stuff. And make sure you hit subscribe if you've not already done so. Upcoming, we have two interviews with owners of American Ultimate Disc League franchises Tim Held of the Indianapolis Alley Cats and James Park of the Los Angeles Aviators. That and much, much more. So make sure that you are subscribed to Going Deep with Aaron Watts. Thanks. Thanks for listening. Connect with Aaron on Twitter and Instagram at AaronWatson59.